Welcome to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds, a weekly podcast for pharmacists, physicians, physician assistants, and nurse practitioners who are interested in learning more about clinical pharmacology topics. I'm your host, Garrett Schramm, Director of Pharmacy Education and Academic Affairs at Mayo Clinic. To claim pharmacology CE credit or to get a copy of presentation slides, visit ce.mayo.edu slash pharmacy podcast. Belanicept is one of the newest immunosuppressants used for the prevention of acute rejection following kidney transplantation. But what happens when belanicept is used for non-kidney transplants? Today, one of Mayo Clinic's pharmacology transplant experts, Dr. Molly McCord, takes us beyond the beans and reviews belanicept's use in non-kidney solid organ transplantations with a focus on efficacy, safety, and literature supporting or refuting its use. Today, we will start with a clinical scenario. A 47-year-old male is admitted to your service with tissue-invasive CMV colitis. The patient is five months out from his liver transplant. He's had a complicated course in terms of his immunosuppression and is currently experiencing acute cellular rejection. Your team asks you if filaticept should be initiated as maintenance immunosuppression in your patient. What do you say? Well, Bladicept has an FDA-approved indication for use in our kidney transplant recipients. However, that does not ring true for our other solid organs. So to be able to answer that question and make a reasonable recommendation, you'd have to take a deep dive into the literature available in each of the other organs to be able to come up with a reasonable recommendation. And that will be what we will be doing today. After today's presentation, you should be able to describe the mechanism of action, recognize the role in therapy, as well as identify a patient in whom belatocept maintenance immunosuppression may be appropriate. First is a general overview of immunosuppression to make sure everybody has a general understanding. When we think of T-cell activation, we typically think of it occurring in three separate signals. We have signal one, where the antigen-presenting cell presents an antigen to the T-cell. We have signal two, our co-stimulation, where CD28 on the T cell binds to CD80 and CD86 on the antigen-presenting cell. And then signal three, which is proliferation, where cytokines are produced and further activation of the immune system occurs. You can see a lot of our immunosuppressants act in various forms, uh, act in various ways on the T cell, and we have those in the bright yellow boxes. Belatocept, of note, is the only one that actually acts on the antigen-presenting cell. So we have a lot of immunosuppressants that we can use in these patients. However, calcineurin inhibitors are known as the backbone of immunosuppression. This is because after calcineurin inhibitors were developed, patient's allograft survival as well as patient survival in general improved drastically. So calcineurin inhibitors are used in most patients. So if calcineurin inhibitors are so um, effective, why was belatocept um, developed? Calcineurin inhibitors also have a wide range of toxicities. They cause cardiovascular disease through hyperlipidemia and hypertension. They cause diabetes, neurotoxicity, as well as nephrotoxicity that can be both acute and chronic. So Bladicept was developed to try to replace the calcineurin inhibitor and prevent some of these toxicities from occurring, especially in our renal transplants who we want their kidneys to be effective. This is the general overview, again, of that T-cell activation. We have that signal 1 presenting the antigen, signal 2 of CD28 binding to CD80 and CD86, the activation of the T-cell, and proliferation. 
However, when bilatacept is introduced, it binds to that CD80 and CD86 on the antigen-presenting cell, prevents that T-cell activation, and prevents proliferation. And that brings us to our first Poll Everywhere question. So if everybody could please pull up Poll Everywhere on your phone, laptop, or tablet, and we will get started. What is the mechanism of action of bilatacept? Does it A, bind to CD28 to inhibit proliferation of T-cells? B, binds CD80 and CD86 to inhibit co-stimulation? C, binds CTLA4 to inhibit cytokine production? Or D, binds to T-cell receptor to inhibit signal 1? All right, so it looks like answers are starting to slow down, and most people, all people answered B, which is the correct answer. A is incorrect because it actually binds to CD20 or CD80 and CD86 to prevent that interaction with CD28. C is incorrect because bilatacept is actually a CTLA4 analog, which is a protein on the T cell receptor. And then D is incorrect because it acts on signal 2, not signal 1. So now that we understand how bilatacept works, we're going to do a general overview of some of the literature in our kidney transplant recipients since that, that is where the FDA-approved indication is. One of the landmark trials is the BENEFIT trial that looked at bilatacept replacing a calcineurin inhibitor to see if it was effective and had some nephroprotection. This trial had two separate bilatacept groups, one having a more intense dosing and one having a less intense dosing. The main difference between these groups you can see here are that extra 10 milligram per kilogram dose at weeks 6, 10, 16, 20, and 24. Both of these were compared to a cyclosporin-modified formulation control. From here on out, whenever I say cyclosporin, I am referring to cyclosporin-modified, but I will just say cyclosporin for, for brevity's sake. In terms of our outcomes from this trial, each, each, diff, each of the groups had a fairly large number of patients, of two, over 200 per group. They evaluated these outcomes for quite some time and even up to seven years. I didn't include seven years on these slides just because for brevity's sake, but trends continued past seven years. Here we can see patients when the two bilatacep groups had um, statistically significantly improved renal function when compared to cyclosporin, even at the seven-year analysis as well. Graph survival did not differ between the three groups. There was less donor-specific antibody in the bilatacep groups. And then acute rejection was actually more common in our bilatacept groups. This acute rejection was typically cellular rejection. Uh, however, it did only, it typically occurred in the first three to six months after transplant. It was responsive to treatment, and it did not affect patient or graft survival, as we can see in that graft above. One um, outcome that was less than expected was an increased risk of post-transplant lymphoproliferative disease or disorder. What PTLD is essentially is an overproduction of white blood cells. It's a well-known complication in our transplant patients, and this can lead to lymphoma. And that lymphoma has a high mortality rate in our patients. So any increased risk of PTLD is taken very seriously. And with this increased risk, bilatacept got a contraindication for use in those patients who are EBV or Epstein-Barr virus IgG seronegative. In another trial, the Benefit EXT trial, it was essentially the same study design, but just in a patient population who received organs from donors who had risk factors that put them at higher risk for, for graft failure. They found there was no difference between the groups in terms of patient or graft survival. However, they did continue to show increased renal function even at that seven-year analysis. 
So overall, what we can take away from these two landmark trials is that patients experience less toxicity to their kidneys, as evidenced by improved renal function, fewer adverse effects in terms of diabetes, those cardiovascular effects like hyperlipidemia and hypertension. They had an increased risk of PTLD, especially in those patients who were EBV, IgG seronegative, and patients did experience more rejection in the bladicept groups. However, that rejection did not improve craft function or survival. That brings us to our next Poll Everywhere question. Which of the following is not a potential benefit of using bilatacept in place of a calcineurin inhibitor? A, there is lower acute rejection risk. B, there is less drug monitoring. C, there is lower risk of post-transplant diabetes. Or D, there is better long-term renal function. Answers are starting to slow down a little bit, and most people answered A, which is the correct answer, because bilatacept actually had higher risk of acute rejection. Bilatacept has less drug monitoring when you compare it to a calcineurin inhibitor that required trough levels. It did have a lower risk of post-transplant diabetes, as well as better long-term renal function. Now that we have did a general overview of a couple of the landmark trials that showed the benefit of bilatacept in our kidney transplant recipients, we will now dive into the literature in each of the other solid organs so we can potentially come up with some recommendation for our patient case in our liver. And that is where we will start. The liver is unique as it is one of the only other organs that has a higher level of evidence in terms of bilatacept use. This first piece of literature is a phase two clinical trial that essentially um, used bilatacept in place of a calcineurin inhibitor in patients who receive, who receiving their first liver transplant. This trial had five distinct groups. The first three all used bilatacept, two of them using a higher dose regimen, one using a lower dose regimen. Only one group got induction therapy with basiliximab. And then groups four and five are our control groups. Four used tecrolimus and mycophenolate, and then five only used tecrolimus or monotherapy. For our different bilatacept regimens, if we're looking at this and comparing it to our benefit trial, there is one major difference, which is that extra dose at day three, or what we would refer to as post-op day two of bilatacept. Patients were also able to receive an extra dose of bilatacept on top of this regimen if they did have excessive bleeding or ascites after, after transplant. For our primary outcome, which was a composite of acute rejection, graft loss, and death at six months, the patients in the Belazep group, which I highlighted in the red box, were actually more likely to experience this. Um, and that was statistically significant when compared to the tacrolimus and mycophenolate group specifically. If we break that down, we can see the large difference in acute rejection risk, and we can see that continued increased risk of death um, individually, which is why this phase two trial was stopped early. Our second piece of literature is a follow-up study to that original, where we had four patients from that trial whose blastcept was discontinued, and they were continued on mycophenolate monotherapy with an increased dose. The authors wanted to evaluate if the patients had some sort of operational tolerance, which means that they have low risk of rejection even with minimal immunosuppression. However, that did not ring true for these patients, and they all developed graft dysfunction, which uh, was treated and resolved after treatment with tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and corticosteroid combination therapy. In our final piece of literature, we had a retrospective review of seven patients who were hepatitis C positive liver transplant recipients. Each of these patients were induced with basiliximab and then received bilatacept for renal dysfunction. 
the Bladicept was initiated at a meeting of eight days post-op, but there is one outlier who received it 90 days after their operation. Bladicept was discontinued once the patient's renal function improved and they were able to be um, switched over to a calcineurin inhibitor and the duration ranged from 19 to 89 days. For relevant results, we had 86% um, of patients in graft survived, so just one patient expired and that was due to malignancy that was apparent before their transplant. There was one episode of graft rejection which was resolved with treatment and then renal function was able to be improved in each of the patients. So what can we conclude from these piece, three pieces of literature in our liver transplant recipients? For that phase two trial, we had that potential increased risk of mortality, especially when used de novo of bladicept. So um, of de novo use should be avoided unless more evidence comes to light suggesting otherwise. And with that final piece of literature, we saw a bridging therapy that did not result in decreased patient outcomes. And so temporary use of bladicept in these patients if they're experiencing intolerance or contraindication could be a safe option, especially as a salvage maintenance regimen. Next, you will dive into the literature available in heart transplant recipients. Our first piece of literature is a case report of a 26-year-old female who developed postpartum, postpartum cardiomyopathy and received a heart transplant in July of 2011. She received induction with RATG, which is rapid antithymocyte globulin. She had a complicated course with multiple cases of rejection that was treated, um, secondary to non-inherence as demonstrated by low or undetectable trough levels of both her tacrolimus and serolimus. So with her multiple cases of rejection and non-inherence, bladicept was initiated in March of 2013. However, the patient six months later did expire due to secondary to cardiac arrest. They were unable to perform an autopsy in this patient, but she had not experienced any rejection after she started bladicept. In our second piece of literature, there was a retrospective analysis of heart transplants at three different centers in France. These, um, the most common reason these patients were initiated on bladicept were for renal dysfunction, but they did include some other, uh, other indications as well. These had two separate groups with early bladicept use being within three months after their transplant and late bladicept use being three months after their trans or after three months post-transplant. The most common induction agent was again RATG. For relevant results in here, there were two cases of de novo DSA in each of the groups. More um, relevant result would be there was a higher allograft rejection rate in the late group after starting bladicept. So that one group were more likely to experience rejection after bladicept was actually initiated. There was one death due to fungal infection and one patient who discontinued their bladicept therapy secondary to recurrent infections as well. However, average kidney function still improved. Our next piece of literature was a case series that evaluated a desensitization protocol in four separate patients who had high CPRA which essentially means that their body already has antibodies against almost any organ that they would receive. For the regimens, it kind of depended on when the patient started the regimen. In cases one and two, they received bortezomib as a proteasome inhibitor and no plasmapheresis. And then in cases three and four, they received bortezomib for two cycles followed by carfilzomib for one cycle in addition to plasmapheresis. Each of the four cases experienced decreased average MFI, which is essentially a titer of how many antibodies they have. Case one had a non-complicated post 
transplant course, case two had some graft dysfunction and mild cellular rejection. Case three experienced mild cardiac allograft vasculopathy, which is a risk factor for rejection in heart transplant recipients. And then case four expired due to LVAD complications before they were actually able to receive their transplant. Our next case report is of a 27-year-old female who was diagnosed with congestive heart failure at 14 years old. She received a six-antigen mismatch heart transplant and was maintained on tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone maintenance therapy. Uh, tacrolimus therapy eventually led to renal dys dysfunction, which she required a kidney transplant for six years and two months after her heart transplant. With this um, renal dysfunction, the patient was started on bilatisep therapy in addition to the tacrolimus, mycophenolate, and prednisone. Eventually, the tacrolimus was able to be weaned off, and after the tacrolimus was weaned off, the patient had three biopsies, two showing no rejection and one showing only mild rejection. Her left ventricular ejection fraction 11 years after her heart transplant remained at over 50%, and to put that into perspective, 50% of patients after a heart transplant will live 12 to 13 years. So this patient has had fairly good outcomes for a heart transplant recipient, even while maintaining on bilatisept therapy for years. Our final piece of literature in our hearts is another case report of a 61-year-old female who received a kidney transplant three years after receiving a simultaneous heart and liver transplant. She was induced with RATG again. This patient, again, had some delayed graft function and um, kidney dysfunction, and so bladicept was initiated. The tacrolimus taper was extended because the patient had some increased risk factors for rejection. Um, however, after bladicept was uh, started, the patient was able to discontinue her dialysis at six weeks, and then no rejection was found on biopsies. So after those pieces of literature, the case reports the case series, what can we conclude? Bladicep continues to show those um, benefits in terms of our improved renal function as well as the uh, lesser adverse effects in terms of those cardiovascular effects and diabetes. However, there isn't as strong of evidence in our, in our heart transplants due to a lot of case reports, but it could be potentially a safe option in those patients who need a salvage maintenance therapy and can't utilize those other evidence-based immunosuppressants. Next, you will discuss our literature available in our lung transplant recipients. Our first piece of literature is a case report of a 64-year-old female bilateral lung transplant. This patient had a complicated course with her, um, with her immunosuppression, one of them being diagnosed with TTP and HUS. Um, the patient was started on bilatisept for, for that reason and was receiving it every two weeks. There was only follow-up data for four weeks after initiation of bilatisept, but at that four weeks there was no sign of rejection and DSA was negative. Our next piece of literature is another case report, this time in a 56-year-old male. This patient received a retransplantation of their lung after developing bronchiolitis obliterans syndrome, which is a well-known complication in lung transplant recipients associated with rejection. Two years after this retransplant, the patient developed fatigue, anemia, and progressive renal failure secondary to the tacrolimus. Then the patient developed TTP-HUS secondary to serolimus therapy progressed to end-stage renal failure, and so was started on bilatisept. At three and six months after initiation of bilatisept, biopsies remained negative for rejection. However, the patient continued to develop recurrent BOS, um, persistent anemia, as well as recurrent pneumonias. Our next piece of literature was a retrospective review of eight lung patients at University of Maryland Medical Center. Um, 
these patients were all started on bilatisept for some form of renal insufficiency. However, these patients um, did not receive bilatisept therapy for as long with median of three doses, and they started bilatisept around one and a half years after their transplant at a median time. These patients had improved renal function after initiation of bilatisept as well, up to six, up to six months afterwards. Of the three patients who were on dialysis before their bilatisept therapy was initiated, two were able to become dialysis-free fairly soon after initiation at 6 and 13 days. There was only one mild case of acute cellular rejection that, that occurred after bilatisept initiation, but that was responsive to steroids. Um, an interesting outcome was there were less infections that occurred in the bilatisept group when you compare that to, the, con compare that to a historical control. However, it was not statistically significant. Our next piece of literature is another review that looked at 11 lung transplant recipients. These patients had a little bit more of an interesting um, reasoning for their bladacept indication where only one was due to renal dysfunction and the rest were more common for press and the TTP. These patients also experienced an increase in their renal function after bladacept was initiated. Um, for patients who had DSA or donor-specific antibodies before bladacept therapy, um, the number was only one after bladacept was initiated. And then no de novo DSA or AMR developed. There were six cases of acute cellular rejection, but all of these cases were responsive to treatment. And then seven of the 11 patients survived to last follow-up. Three deaths did occur due to infection, two because of invasive aspergillosis, and then one was due to a progression of the patient's renal disease. Our next piece of literature is another case report of a 53-year-old female. This patient had another complicated course with immunosuppression and was eventually started on bladicept at 38 months post-transplant. Three weeks after bladicept was initiated, this patient developed invasive tracheobronchial aspergillosis, um, and that's important to note because that's not a very common complication this far out from transplant. And so bilatisept's place in that is unknown, but it could be a, a risk factor to take into consideration for future patients. In our final piece of literature in our lung transplant recipients, we have a 65-year-old female single lung transplant recipient in a case report. This patient um, developed renal impairment 11 months after her transplant, and so bilatisept was initiated. 25 days after initiation, the patient developed a cough. At day 27, the patient was diagnosed with fulminant acute respiratory distress syndrome. And then at day 54, the patient passed away due to death from sepsis. Due to death from sepsis. So overall conclusions, we continued that same trend with better renal function and less adverse effects when you compare it to our calcineurin inhibitors. However, there is this unclear risk of infection that needs to be um, dive into further. And so bilatisept use in these transplant recipients should be used with caution. In our final organ group, we have our vascularized composite allografts, or VCA. And for those who don't know, that's essentially like a hand or a face transplant. But today, we will be focusing on hands, as that is where the literature lies. Our first piece of literature is a case series of four different hand transplants, one receiving unilateral, three other doing bilateral hand transplants. These patients were all started on bilatisept for either renal insufficiency or due to repeated episodes of rejection. 
The first two cases experienced a non-complicated course after Bilatisept was initiated. However, case three did require their um, tacrolimus taper to be extended due to continued signs of graft dysfunction. Case four was more complicated. The patient had experienced two episodes of antibody-mediated rejection before Bilatisept was even initiated and had high DSA or donor-specific antibodies. After initiation, the patient experienced an episode of acute rejection that was severe, so Bilatisept was discontinued, and the patient was treated with um, the patient was treated with uh, depleting um, a depleting agent. The rejection recurred eight months later. The patient was treated again. However, this time the, patient, the treatment was not very successful, and so the patient eventually lost his graft. Our final piece of literature is another case report, this time in a 21-year-old female who had de novo alloantibodies post-transplant and had multiple cases of rejection. This patient eventually um, experienced renal dysfunction secondary to calcineurin inhibitor use and also experienced antibody-mediated rejection. Due to that renal dysfunction and antibody-mediated rejection, the patient was initiated on bilatisept therapy that was dosed monthly, but the exact dose wasn't described. In terms of her outcomes, the patient's renal function was able to be improved with no further rejection as evidenced by the patient's serum creatinine. And the patient continued as last reported on bilatisept therapy at 350 milligrams every eight weeks. Um, the, and the patient continued improving graft function as evidenced by improved ability to play the guitar as well as improved ability to swing a baseball bat. So what can we conclude in our VCA transplant recipients? We continue to see that improved renal function like we've been discussing. However, this is where we have the least evidence available, and so there's not enough to be able to say and really assess the risk for rejection as well as effectiveness. However, again, if we need to use it as salvage therapy, it could be done, but taking into consideration that it needs to be done with extreme caution. That leads us to our final, quest our final question and a revisit to our patient case. So I'll read it again for you guys. This is a 47-year-old male who was admitted to your service with tissue-invasive CMV colitis. The patient is five months out from his liver transplant. Previously, he was on tacrolimus, which was switched to everolimus due to um, developing press. Right now, we are currently holding his everolimus secondary to neutropenia. He's experiencing acute cellular rejection that we are treating. For irrelevant serologies, the patient is CMV donor positive, recipient negative, and EBV donor negative and recipient positive. Your team asks you if bilatisept should be initiated as maintenance immunosuppression, what do you say? Do you say yes, no, or do you think this is a trick question and there's no real right or wrong answer? So it looks like the answers are a little bit split. With a lot of people saying no, a couple people saying yes, and then some people saying it's a trick question where there's no right answer. There is actually no correct answer per se. So if I'm looking at the case, I'll go ahead and take us back. Um, some of the things that might point me towards using bilatisept in this patient, he's not contraindicated because he is EBV IgG zero negative, so that's not a con or zero positive, so it's not a contraindication in this patient. Um, he's had a complicated history with his, with his immunosuppression, and he's currently experiencing rejection, so maybe he's under immunosuppressed. 
However, if I want to look on the flip side and things that make me think I don't want to use Belazept in this patient, the patient currently has tissue-invasive CMV colitis. So maybe we don't want to give him more immunosuppression because that might prevent him from clearing this disease. Also, in our kidney transplant recipients, we do see a potential increase in CMV. However, we don't know if that's very applicable to our liver transplant recipients, but something to take into consideration. Another thing is that we could potentially retrial a calcineurin inhibitor or tacrolimus in this patient to see if PRESS was a true response or if he developed PRESS again. And then finally, there isn't a lot of evidence telling us whether or not this is safe. And the patient probably doesn't have an extensive history of rejection. So if we can wait until the patient um, clears the CMV, give him some time, and then reassess, if the patient continues to have um, it continues to be intolerant to those other immunosuppressants and um, maybe experiences more rejection, then we could revisit that bladicept therapy. So I would say, not at this time or no. After reviewing all of those great pieces of literature for each of the organs, what can we say in general for bladicept in non-kidney transplant recipients? I would say that bilatacept could be used as salvage immunosuppression in those patients who are EBV, IgG, zero positive. Um, these patients, um, especially in those who cannot tolerate or have failed other evidence-based immunosuppression therapy for their specific organ. So let's kind of flip the script and say that we decided that we wanted to start bilatacept in our liver transplant patient. What do you need to know about bilatacept in order to make sure that it's being done appropriately? First, I included the dosing of bilatacept that we use in our kidney transplant recipients, both de novo, so right after transplant, and converting from a calcineurin inhibitor. Um, one thing that you can notice is that dosing regimens are fairly complicated, and so it's important that if you're doing a medication reconciliation on this patient, that you get that last dose of uh, the bilatacept therapy on there so we know exactly when it happened. We can administer bilatacept inpatient and to be able to do that appropriately, we do need that last dose that they received. It is a milligram per kilogram dosing as I've been saying, so what weight do we use? We use actual body weight in these patients and we round it to the nearest 12.5 milligrams per the package insert. If the weight does change of the patient, we only change the dosing weight if the weight change is more than 10%. In terms of administration, it is a 30-minute IV infusion that utilizes a filter. Premedications are not required for bladicept. And then if the patient is also receiving antithymocyte globulin, that administration needs to be separated by 12 hours due to an, due to an increased risk of graft thrombosis. I included the contraindication to drive it home that EBV IgG seronegative patients are contraindicated as well as other adverse effects for review. There is a distribution program for patients who are receiving bladicept, which they need to be enrolled in. In terms of administering it inpatient, we need to fill out a drug request form so we can get a patient-specific supply for that patient. However, if medications do need to, if the bladicept does need to be started fairly soon, we don't have to wait for that patient-specific supply to arrive. We can use medication that we have on hand. For future directions, um, I mentioned further studies need to be done to make more solid conclusions and recommendations in these other, in these other organs. So what studies are currently ongoing? 
There are three actively, three studies actively recruiting that I am going to highlight. Two of them in, are in heart transplant recipients, one looking at de novo use, and then one looking at use in cardiac transplant patients specifically who are at a high risk of chronic renal failure. The last one is a study at Duke University looking at use in our VCA transplant patients. There is another study that is active but not currently recruiting out of Houston Methodist Hospital that is looking at bladiseptive use and lung transplantation. And then this other study, which is actually looking at the use in kidney transplant recipients, but this time it is in adolescents ages 12 to 18, and it's looking at the conversion of, of calcineurin inhibitors to bladicept. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, subscribe using iTunes or your favorite podcasting app. Thank you for listening to Mayo Clinic Pharmacy Grand Rounds. Join us weekly for more exciting clinical pharmacology topics.